So over the Christmas break, I may have already mentioned this here, but over the Christmas break, uh, Diane and I made it a goal to digitize all of our old family videos and put them on a hard drive. And I want you to see this. On the left is our setup. Sorry for the feet. On the right is a very partial set of videos that we transferred, made a digital, just in the first weekend. It was a lot. But I couldn't help but notice that, that almost all of the videos that we did were of special occasions. It was, it was births and birthdays and, and every Christmas. There was an occasional random day at the beach or, or a school play, but mostly it was the big occasions. And that's because we didn't have these back in the day. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, we couldn't bore, I mean, uh, thrill people with the random videos of everything we ate and, and every step that was taken and every time somebody rolled o over. In order to film, and some of you will remember, we had to get our 400-pound camera on our shoulder and, and put a disc inside it and then tape onto this disc and then find somewhere to store these gigantic discs. Still... What we had back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, was the ultimate inconvenience when you compare what they had in Jesus' day. Because in Jesus' day, when they wanted to record a memory, they had to find parchment and a quill and ink, which were hard to come by. Or if you couldn't do that, you had to find someone to chisel it literally into a rock. And all of that, you had to find someone who could read and write and who was willing to do so. This is one of the reasons why there is scant material. There's not much material about Jesus's life, especially from his childhood. But that makes me think about how important the story is that Kingston read for us this morning and how fascinated Dr. Luke seems to be with this story. He takes up a lot of space for this little story from Jesus's childhood. It, it wasn't easy to find the stuff out or to write it all down. So why, why was Dr. Luke so fascinated. We can see why this story would have been so memorable for Mary, of course. But, but why so fascinating for Luke? I think there are a couple of reasons. We'll get to that at the end. But I want to welcome you first to our new Lenten series this morning. We're calling it Stories of Jesus. And we're going to walk our way through the life of Jesus by looking at significant stories at different points in his life. We'll try to lay them out chronologically also so we can kind of get, a, get a, an idea of the flow of Jesus's life. Now, obviously, we're beginning with the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. But before we tackle that story, I want us to look back for a minute, back even before the story that Kingston read for us this morning. If we were going to digitize the videos from, from Jesus's childhood, our collection would begin not with Jesus, but with his parents. The video first would be of Mary, and she would tell us about how she heard about her pregnancy. And the video would include Mary's reaction, which was basically being stunned, completely stunned and completely astonished. And then we get Joseph's version. And this video would be a little grittier, but ultimately it would tell the same story as Mary's, and we would get to see what a righteous and law-abiding man Joseph was. We would punch this out, having captured it on the hard drive, and we would label it, you know, story from mom and dad. Then, of course, the birth video. And Mary would have been yelling at Joseph, and Joseph would have been yelling at Mary, and Joseph would have cried, and Mary would have cried, and Joseph would have been looking for excuses to be anywhere else, and Mary would have threatened him, his life, if he decided to leave. And then, it's a boy! 
Congratulations all around. And then the camera would back up, and we would see the scene, the hay and the animals and the cave. And it would be, it would be sweet, but very, very rustic, and that's being uh, generous. And we would pop out this video, and we would label it Jesus' birth. And the next video would be the arrival of the shepherds. Mary and Joseph would be confused in this one. I suspect it would be a little hectic and scattered. In fact, I think it would take Joseph a while to figure out that he needed to film this and then where to find the camera. I think they would have questioned the, the shepherds repeatedly. Now, now, who are you? And, and why are you here? And how did you hear about us once it sunk in? I think Joseph would have been very talkative, and probably even more than the shepherds. Joseph knew the scriptures well, and Joseph would be sharing about how, wow, the, what they were telling sounded like one of the stories from, from the scriptures. And, and I think Mary, well, Mary would have been overwhelmed, I suspect, all of this fuss about her son. We pop out this video and we label it, When the Shepherds Came. The next video would have been Mary and Joseph presenting Jesus in the temple. They would have brought a friend to film this one because Mary and Joseph would have both been needed to accomplish the task. So in this one, we get to see more of Joseph than we typically do. And in fulfillment of the law, the, the young couple brought their eight-day-old son to the temple to dedicate him to God. This is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, right before the incident that, uh, that uh, Kingston read for us. And the volume on this video, I think, would be tricky. The temple was a, was a very loud, chaotic place. There'd be lots of shouting and chanting. And Joseph would be off in the distance trying to find the right rabbi and the right place to do what they came to do. The camera flashes between Joseph in the distance and, and, and Mary uh, up close and looking a little lost, confused, and concerned. And from behind the camera, we would hear the friend speak reassuringly, don't worry, Mary, Joseph knows what he's doing and everything's going to be fine. The camera goes dark and we wait for a few seconds and then the next scene, the rabbi is in place holding the baby Jesus. So obviously Joseph has found the right spot and the right person. We don't hear most of the exchange between the couple and the rabbi, but the only thing we hear really are Jesus' cries, but we do hear the rabbi is the name of the child and Joseph says he'll be named Jesus. The camera goes dark and we think it's over. We're about to pop the video out and then another scene comes on. There's this old man. Perhaps he's a rabbi, perhaps not. He looks kind of wild. He has the baby Jesus in his hands and we hear him say some prayer that he's glad he didn't die before he saw this. Joseph turns to the camera and says, that's Simeon. He's a famous prophet. I can't believe what he just said about Jesus. Then Simeon, Simeon says something incredibly epic to Mary, and, and as soon as he finishes, an older woman comes over. She looks almost as wild as Simeon, and she begins to talk to the crowd that has gathered because Simeon is there. She begins to explain that, that this baby will lead to the redemption of Israel. We see Joseph moved to tears as he's beginning to be questioned by the people around him and actually some of the onlookers are congratulating him and, and then the friend moves the camera to Mary and she holds Jesus closely and she kisses him and whispers something we don't hear. The video ends, we don't know what to call this. So we call it Jesus presented at the temple. The next video is clearly weeks later. 
Jesus' face has changed. It's a little pudgier. And there's a very strange crowd gathering around the manger, and they're they, trying to see Jesus. They're trying to speak to Mary. This seems like a group of wealthy foreigners and their entourage. They, they've got thick accents, and they are dramatically overdressed. We don't see Joseph at all. He, he may be running an errand. He may be behind the camera. We don't know. We don't hear him through this whole conversation. The foreigners explain that they've seen some kind of heavenly arrangement that has led them to literally believe that this baby is going to be a, a spectacular king. And, and it's not really clear to us what they mean, and it's certainly not clear to Mary. She's never seen anything like this before. What they're doing seems partly like an act of worship and partly like a political overture. The uh, video shuts off with no real clear explanation, and so we label this one those weird foreign ambassadors. The final video is very brief. It's a shot of Jesus as a young boy in Egypt. We know it's Egypt because we can see something in the background. There's no sound in this video. It's pretty short, as I said. Uh, we would later learn that Joseph had heard from the strange foreigners that uh, Jesus was not safe. And so Joseph had decided to take his baby and his young wife to Egypt. At this time, there were probably as many as a million Jews living in Egypt. And I suspect that Joseph knew that he could go there, find a friend, and also find work. So Joseph moved his family to Egypt for a couple of years during this period. That's all we've got until the event that Kingston read for us. Now, you should know that the Old Testament law demanded that every righteous Jewish man would attend the temple in Jerusalem during religious holidays, the religious holidays of Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover every year. I want you to check out this reference from Exodus 23. Especially notice verse 17. Skip over to that, Pete. Now, when the temple was first destroyed in 586 BC and the people were scattered by the Babylonians, well, it was no longer possible to achieve this, to fulfill this, to observe this for years. And, and, and then the temple was rebuilt. And at that point, the most serious Jewish men began again to make the annual trip to Jerusalem at least once a year for the Passover celebration. And Joseph, Jesus' follower, father, was in the habit of doing so because he was such a You know, think about the years that Jesus' family spent in Egypt. Traveling to Jerusalem from Egypt would have been quite an ordeal. It probably took weeks. And, and still, Joseph made that trip every year. In fact, our story indicates that Mary went with him. Usually, these Jerusalem trips would be made with a very large crowd from the same region traveling together. This made the trip safer and more convenient. And after a few years in Egypt, it became safe for Joseph to move back to Israel. And so, he brings the family back. They don't settle in or around Jerusalem because he wasn't sure that area was still safe. So, he moved Mary and Jesus and whatever other children may have come along by then. He moved them to the region of Galilee, to a city of Nazareth, which was pretty far north. Once the family had settled in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary continued their practice of going to Jerusalem every year at Passover. 
Now, this trip would have taken anywhere between three and seven days, depending on weather, depending on inconveniences, depending on what route you took. I mean, this was a costly, taxing trip, but they did it every year as the law of God required. At long last, when Jesus was 12 years old, he made the trip to Jerusalem with his parents. Now, I want you to check out what Luke says in chapter 2, 41 and 42 here. Jesus goes, now the translation here, look at the very end, see it, it says, as usual. A better translation of that is according to custom. And what Luke meant by that is for a young Jewish boy at 12 years old, it was customary that they became a son of the law. And this meant that the 12-year-old boy would be fully responsible for keeping the requirements of the law himself, including keeping the feasts. So Jesus would have been in that position, and imagine how excited he would have been at making the trip. The, the wording here suggests that this was the first time that Jesus had gone on the Passover trip with his parents. He would have been filled with wonder at the sights and sounds of Jerusalem and of the temple. I want you to check out a couple of pictures here. Go to the picture, Pete, if you would. There is at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, uh, when Diane and I visited, honestly, this is weird, but this is one of my favorite things about the trip. There is a gigantic model of Jerusalem in the first century BC. It is exact to scale 1 to 50. And Diane here has taken a picture of us at a rail above the model looking at the temple. Now she's looking at the whole city. So that is Jerusalem, and it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's made with the same kind of stone that the city of Jerusalem is made from. And you see the Temple Mount, the courtyards on the outside, the temple in the middle, and how the city lays out around it and beyond it. If you look at that kind of a structure on the upper right corner of the Temple Mount, that was a Roman garrison. That's where the Roman soldiers were garrisoned so that they could guard over Jerusalem. And there's a wall all the way around it. If you see that, the, the wall of Jerusalem, you can even see, if you look closely, especially down along the wall to the left of the temple, you can see a couple of the gates into the city. Now, Jesus may have seen even larger cities than this as a very young boy in Egypt, but it's unlikely that he would have very vivid memories of them. Plus, Jerusalem during the Passover was something else altogether. It was part mega church prayer meeting, part festival, part Disneyland. There, there, that throngs of people from all over the world would have crowded in Jerusalem, plus a huge contingent of Roman soldiers to keep the peace. For a boy from little old Nazareth, this would have been, this would have been something else. Of course, Jesus was captivated. But the thing that seems to have been the most fascinating to him, the thing that captured his imagination, imagination the most, seems to have been the teaching of the rabbis and scribes around the temple area. This is just like some of our boys and girls here at Gateway. Boys and girls, I know that you have televisions and you've got your video games. Occasionally your parents will take you to uh, vacation in, in Disney World, but the thing that fascinates you the most is listening to Pastor Ed on Sunday morning. It's just like that. You know, what's interesting, uh, we might even know the names of some of the people that were hanging around in Jerusalem at the temple when Jesus was there. You know, I wonder if Anna was still alive. She was an old woman when she saw him as a little boy, but she may have been. I wonder if Simeon was still there. Did either of them remember uh, the boy Jesus? And did they see the 12-year-old and, and connect the two? Almost certainly, Joseph 
of Arimathea and Nicodemus and Gamaliel were there. Imagine later in life Jesus meeting one of these men and telling them, you know, I saw you when I was a young boy in Jerusalem. How wild would it have been if they had remembered the young boy Jesus? It certainly wouldn't have been impossible because Jesus made quite an impression while he was there. Listen to this. Kingston read this for us. Luke describes it like this. Jesus was, quote, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed, remember that, at his understanding and his answers. Now, this probably happened in the part of the temple known as the terrace. This was almost like a patio outside of the main part of the temple courtyard that we could see in that picture. The religious professors and rabbis would hold court. They would, they would teach on Sabbaths and during the festivals in this area. And evidently, 12-year-old Jesus was there, and he was asking questions. Now, this would have been uh, very appropriate. It was encouraged, but it would have been highly unusual for a 12-year-old boy to be in that crowd asking questions. Often when the teachers were asked questions, they would answer with a question. This was their pattern of teaching. You can see that in Jesus throughout the New Testament. The thing is that the 12-year-old Jesus amazed the teachers with his answers to their questions. Now, I saw something. That's why I highlighted that word amazed. I saw something really interesting this week. I was, I was looking this up, looking this reference up. And this word amazed here translates the Greek word Existomy. One of the commentaries I was looking at said of this word, and I want to quote this, quote, it's a term which illustrates the difficulty of expressing in one English word the wide range of startled emotions like wonder, astonishment, awe. They're all in this word, end quote. Now this surprised me because it's just an unusual thing for a commentary to say. Here's what I mean. Uh, every Greek word has a range of meanings in English. In fact, that's true of every translation from any language to another language. I kind of wondered why the author made such a big deal about this word like that. So I looked it up in another commentary. The other one said this about this word, quote, this is a noteworthy word for Luke to use. It's a very strong word for expressing great amazement. In other words, these professors were stunned at the boy Jesus. More about that in a minute. Obviously, you can imagine what happened in this incident overall. If you were following Kingston's story, there was a large caravan of families from Nazareth who made the trek from Galilee down to Jerusalem. The men would have congregated mostly together, probably. Uh, the women, likewise, mostly walking together. Some children were uh, along for the journey, and the children would have been bouncing back and forth between dad and mom, and then off to relatives sometimes helping, mostly playing. Then at the end of the Passover celebration, exactly the opposite in return from Jerusalem back up to Nazareth. The whole group would have packed up. They would have left Jerusalem at the appointed time. It would have been a little rowdy and chaotic. You can imagine a lot of memories would be shared. Uh, lots of fun would be shared. Some intimate encounters with God would be shared. Lots of stories. And then they probably would have prayed and set off. Again, the women in one part of the train, men in another part of the train. Again, the chaos of children dancing back and forth between parents and relatives. They, they walked for a full day. And at nightfall, Mary and Joseph met and they would have begun to set up camp. And at that point, they realized 
Jesus was missing. Now Mary had believed he was with Joseph, perhaps, or with some of the relatives. Joseph had believed he was with Mary, perhaps, or some of the relatives, and they would have been completely distraught. They didn't know where their child was, but they knew he was at least a day's journey away. I heard a story last week from a guy unrelated to this who was talking about the time when he and his wife took uh, their young child, their daughter, to Disneyland. Seeing the sights, they both thought they were holding her hand. They look up a, a minute later and she's gone, nowhere to be seen. And he described utter frenetic franticness. I mean, they were overwhelmed and began to run from place to place, anything they could see, grabbing people by the collar. Where is she? Where is she? Well, ultimately, they found her. But this is how Mary and Joseph would have felt, of course. I'll bet you there are some parents here who have <laughs> lost a child at one point. Uh, the next morning, Mary and Joseph would have packed up after a sleepless night, and they would have walked a full day back to Jerusalem. They would have they wouldn't have made it until nightfall, so they couldn't begin their search immediately. Instead, after another sleepless night, they would have tried to retrace their steps. The home they had stayed at, the, the market area, perhaps the street up past the, the, pal the ancient palace of old King David, and finally to the temple itself. And there they found him, sitting at the feet of the temple professors. Everyone seemed to know this, his name, and everyone seemed to be impressed with the young boy. But that wouldn't have mattered to Mary and Joseph, <laughs> not immediately anyway. And you know what happened next. Boys and girls, I'll bet some of you have heard your moms and dads say something like this. What were you thinking? What were you going to do? What, 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 what was your plan? Do you, know how, do you know how we felt? Do you know how long we've been searching? for? Three days we've been looking for you. And then Jesus responded. But why did you need to search? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, boys and girls, I don't recommend that you try that kind of answer, not unless you can do what Jesus did next. Luke tells us that after this was all over, he returned to Nazareth with his parents, and he obeyed them from then on. We can easily understand, and we can see, why Mary remembered this event for the rest of her life. But why was, this, why was this so fascinating to Luke? Well, as I said, I think there are two reasons, maybe more. First of all, this story shows us Jesus' amazing devotion to the Father. It was a single-minded devotion, and, and he had it even as a young boy. Jesus was fully devoted to the Father. You know, whenever people want to illustrate child prodigies, you may have heard this before. It seems like they talk about Mozart. Uh, most of you have heard of the great composer Mozart. Supposedly, he learned to play the piano and the violin at age four. According to lore, he could play the violin the first time he picked it up. And it is a fact that he wrote his first piano concerto at four years of age. He showed genius at a remarkably young age. And this was a hint toward what would come in his life. I've been reading a biography lately of Frederick Douglass. Douglass grew up as a slave, a slave in Maryland. And yet he evidently showed remarkable intellectual promise as a young boy. 
Fortunately, he had an owner when he was a young owner, when he was a young boy who recognized his promise and, and taught him to read at a young age. And then when it was believed that, that Frederick was getting a little beyond his station, he was forbid, forbidden to learn anymore, only he didn't stop. Against great odds, he continued through his own wile and devices to learn and this would be just a hint of the incredible, impactful life that Frederick Douglass would one day lead. This is what Luke sees in Jesus, even as a young boy. He showed, even at this remarkably young age, an incredible devotion to the Father. I must be in my Father's house, Jesus said. Let me say two things to the boys and girls here of all ages. Devotion to God, first of all, sets us apart. Devotion to God makes us different from everyone else. This is an awesome thing, but it also can be a challenging thing. I once had a friend who grew deeply devoted to God as a high school student. He started a Bible study at his high school, one morning a week before classes. There was no pastor, there was no youth worker, no one involved, just a young man devoted to God. The Bible study grew. In fact, it got to be pretty large. It ended up making an impact on his whole high school. Now, my friend gave up some things because of his devotion to God. It set him apart, but he gained so much more. Devotion to God sets us apart. Secondly, devotion to God also allows for God's blessing in our lives. It facilitates God's blessing. It opens up a channel for God to bless us. This is why Luke connects the story to the very last thing he said, the very last thing Kingston read for us. Look at the last verse. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Devotion to God allows for God's blessing. We were designed to live lives that are devoted to God. So when we live according to our design, well, there's a flow to our lives. This doesn't mean that there won't be challenges. It doesn't mean that there won't be serious trials and difficulties. It doesn't mean that our lives will be easy. But it does mean that some pitfalls and mistakes will be avoided. Some disasters will be averted. Some blessings can flow to us that otherwise could not. Devotion to God allows for God's blessing on our lives. This is what the prophet Jeremiah meant. When he was speaking for God, he said, chapter 7, verse 23, This is what I told them. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do everything as I say, and all will be well. This is what Jesus meant later in his life when he was teaching his followers about worrying. Jesus said, worrying, it, it, look, it's, it's not helpful, and it's unproductive, and, and there's an alternative. And here's the alternative, according to Jesus. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. The story of 12-year-old boy Jesus demonstrated that he practiced what he preached. He was singularly devoted to the Father, even as a young boy, and it gave us hints of the life that would come. The second reason I think that Luke was fascinated by this story is it demonstrated how awesome Jesus is, and we're going to end with this, uh, and by the way, how worthy he is of our worship. That's what we do as followers of Jesus still today. We worship him. We don't just admire him. We worship him. And uh, the religious professionals were amazed at him. And Mary knew. She knew. 
And she treasured these things in her heart. She, she knew that her son was awesome. The genius of Mozart that would eventually thrill generations of music lovers. It was evidenced even as a child. And Luke is telling us the same thing about Jesus. The one who would be worthy of worship. Even as a child, he was remarkable. Notice he was about his father's business. Luke is trying to tell us right from the beginning of this story, uh, hey, it was obvious from the beginning of his life, Jesus was the Son of God. Can you see it? Even here, even as a 12-year-old, he showed us he was the Son of God. Now look, we're all sons and daughters of God, but this is something different. This is being a son in a whole different way. You know, let me give you an illustration. Uh, Goofy, but you'll get the point. My house is on Plymouth Place in Ashburn. And Diane and I own our house after 10 more years of payments to the bank. But I want you to see how different that is from Earl's house. Earl cleared the land for his house. He used the timber from the trees he cut down to make boards. And then he used those boards to build his home with his own hand. He built every part of it. It took a few years, but he did it. And when he finished, he didn't know anyone, anything. Earl owns his home in a whole different way that Diane and I own ours. In the same way, Jesus is a son in a whole different way than I am. He's God's unique son, and you could see it even as a boy. You know, the first followers of Jesus would eventually come to see that he was not just the Son of God. He was actually one with the Father. In fact, they came to understand that he had existed from eternity as one with the Father, completely one with the Father. In fact, they came to understand that he wasn't just the Son of God. He was God the Son. Jesus is awesome and worthy of our worship. So, I want us to end our time this morning with an act of worship. We're going to read the middle stanza of the Nicene Creed. Now, uh, you don't usually separate part of the creed from the rest of, us, rest of it, but today I want us to focus on Jesus. So we're going to end by reading a stanza from the Nicene Creed about Jesus, and I want you to notice how these early followers of Jesus had come to understand and crafted a statement about who he was, setting, setting him aside, acknowledging his profound uniqueness and worshiping him. So stand with me if you would, and let's read together this stanza from the Nicene Creed about Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Hold on, Pete. Just let that marinate for a second. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Let's see the rest of it. Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Hold on. What? Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. 
The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom. Father, we bow our lives before you willfully. Our attitudes, our our thoughts, our heart, our will. And we acknowledge this morning the awesomeness of your son, Jesus. God the Son. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father. We recognize that and celebrate that this morning. That's why we've gathered, Jesus. We've gathered to brag about you. And we see it even as a boy, how amazing you were, how remarkable you were. And today, hear us. Hear us celebrate you, recognizing that as we do so, you know, God, as we do so, as we really do so, as we seek that first, everything else gets taken care of. Everything else gets taken care of. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.